Hey, welcome to Kesset. How's everybody? That was. <laughs> I don't know why I expected more than that. Uh, I'm not really sure. No, no, no. It's not. It was me, not you. It's me, not you. Uh, I think it was just the worship and the energy, and then I don't know if we're all just sort of like it's midsummer. I keep realizing that that uh, the attendance we've been having has been growing, growing, growing. But it's also midsummer, which if you know anything about church planting in the Northwest, like sun and Seahawks are the two things that kill your churches in the Northwest. Um, so what's amazing is I think although there's a lot more people than we're used to, we're still kind of in that summer vibe, like, man, I love it. Life is good. And I love it. And I'm excited that you're here for our summer series that we're in. It's called uh, Where the Girls Are. And uh, I'm, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors I'm going to share with you today. And uh, it's been an interesting series to preach. Uh, last week we did a talk just sort of specifically for men, and uh, I just want to say how proud I am that there are men back in the church today. Uh, very quiet group of uh, members of the church that exited last week. I think I had maybe two or three handshakes total on the way out. I had a lot of acknowledgement, but it was like this, like, and they just left. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that a, that a bunch of you have decided to come back and are staying in the conversation. Um, Ladies, it sounds like uh, you've, you've been kind as the gentlemen that are in your life are curious and are asking questions about how you feel and if these things that we're talking about in the series are, are, are real and valid in your story as well. So I just want to continue with that vein today as I speak specifically to you. Uh, I want to be careful, though, as I do, to, to not assume or presume for you to think that I think I get it. Uh, I just feel on my heart that I want to speak and share about some things I've learned in prepping this series, and I want to share some things with you that God has laid on my heart, but I don't want you to think that I somehow uh, understand the way that, for a lot of us, the church has treated you or how you have felt uh, inside this series. So we're good? All that's clear? Okay, good. Uh, we're going to start right back at the beginning today in our talk. We're going to start right back at Genesis, and we're going to kind of unfold uh, how God intended uh, women to be seen, especially alongside men, and uh, the way that the world has kind of taken that and, and warped it into something different. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. It's a straightforward passage, kind of Sunday school style. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, I'm emphasizing that on purpose. That's not just how I read. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This passage right from the get-go gets often manipulated to think that every time the passage says man, it means only men. But there's a whole bunch of thems in there, folks. The word man in this passage is used in a universal sense. It is generic, including of both men and women. They are given the shared responsibility, a mission and commission of joint dominion over the earth. They are called to fill the earth. They are called to subdue the earth. And they are called to rule it together. So right from the get-go, this is the kind of passage that some of us in the room are like, whoa, 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 hold on. My understanding is that when it says God created the heavens and the earth and said, let's make man, he meant men. 
And then I actually had a guy tell me, and then women were made in man's image because man was made in God's image according to this passage. That is some terrible Bible. Absolutely terrible Bible. Uh, be, just, that's actually just terrible reading. That's just bad English is what that is. Because you can see clearly that that's, that's not what's happening here. And just in case you need more clarity, Genesis 2 then goes back and gives you a play-by-play recap of how we got here. It says that God made man first. This is true. That God put the man in a beautiful place and instructed him to work it and take care of it. This is true. That God gave man instructions on life in the garden, which he later passed on to woman who was not present when the instructions were given. And that God warned the man concerning the forbidden tree and God directed man to name the animals. That's how Genesis 2 kind of unfolds. And as man is naming the animals, we recognize that each of the animals he's naming has a counterpart, but there was no counterpart for man. Therefore, in this exercise, God is showing man has a desire and need for a companion. And then God gives us his motivation for creating woman in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So let's just, uh, let's church this up just a little bit because that's what we did a little bit last week. Helper means somebody who does all the chores you don't want to do. Oh, women in the room are getting confident. Like, no, that's not what it means. Men in the room are like, finally, a sermon for her. (laughs) Finally, listen to him. Listen to him. He knows stuff. Last week, he was a little off. But this week, he's got it back. I knew he'd get it back. (laughs) I'm a believer. The word helper in this passage is, uh, is a really powerful word, and it's a unique word, and it's a word that means the same thing each time it's used. So what's important to do in this passage is actually look at the word helper. The word is used 21 times in the Old Testament in total, and the word is ezer. That's the word that's being used in this passage. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a ezer, helper, fit for him. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. In two cases, it refers to the woman Eve as a helper. In three other times, it refers to powerful nations that Israel called for help when besieged. So three other times, it actually means more of a rescuer. Well, that doesn't work for my theology, some men in the room might say. I definitely don't think God created a rescuer for Adam, but it says he was incredibly lonely. It says that he needed a companion. Maybe she did come in a sense to rescue him from loneliness. Maybe that's what helper means. 16 remaining cases the word is used in the Old Testament. And the word in those cases all refer to as God as our helper. 16 times God is called an Ezra helper in the Old Testament. So let's put this on the screen. So we can all be really clear. Because God is not subordinate to his creation, any idea that an Ezra helper is inferior or incapable is unfounded. And no, God doesn't want to do all the chores in your life you don't want to do. He's not there for you to boss around. He's not there to complete your life and and therefore make it easier for you to exist as a man in this world. And he's definitely not there to, to accomplish your dreams and yours alone. God has his own agenda and his own plan and he is helping in times of need and he is rescuing and he is showing up and he is powerful and he is his own person. And so for those in the room who believe that woman was made to be a less than do whatever I say chore helper, again, it's just really bad Bible. 
It's just not in the text. Although it is in many of our church structures and systems. Genesis 3 is when it really starts to turn a corner. And this is where a lot of church structures have really held on to and grabbed and, and built entire denominations out of just these, this next passage right here. Genesis 3 shows us when sin enters the world, this perfect world where both man and woman are partners, where they are ruling together alongside each other, where there is equal dominion, where there is equal authority and all these beautiful things. And then it says that both man and women, woman sinned, and so both were equally fallen. But there was a difference in the way they sinned. When God confronted the man, the man shirked responsibility and blamed the woman. <laughs> that was a ton of women like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, wow, oh, whoever's, whoever's wife that is, I'm so sorry for your ride home after this. But this is what it says, Genesis 3.12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. She helped me sin. That's what she did. When God confronted the woman, it says she realized she had been deceived and admitted it right away. Genesis 3.13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Plain and simple, straightforward, I did it, I alone. This result in this sin that entered the world is therefore tied directly to struggle and suffering. And it's those things that have infiltrated every aspect of life. God had commissioned them to be fruitful and multiply. But now a woman's childbearing would be accompanied with great pain. God had commissioned them to subdue the earth. But now man's work would be accompanied by painful toil, thorns, and thistles. It's as if, I'll put it on the screen, there was this painfully restrictive veil placed between what God intended and the created beings he loved so much. It's as if something changed that separated humanity from the one who made them. And from this day forward, everyday survival would require sweat, struggle, and suffering for both. And the worst part of that struggle was yet to be revealed because the worst part of that struggle wouldn't just be alienation from uh, man and women and their creation, but alienation between themselves. Genesis 3.16 says, your desire, God speaking to Eve, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is a really powerful passage for us to understand because this is a direct result of sin entering the story. So I just want to, I'm just going to step way out on a limb here and say that this verse has been used a lot of times to uh, subdue women in a household where the man says, this verse basically says, I'm in charge and no matter what, you have to do what I say. And I just wanna say, based on my reading of the text, and I think if you were to be authentic and curious about this as well, what that means is, is you're basing your entire household on the curse and not what was before the fall, but what actually happened after sin entered the story. So every time you're building your marriage, your life, your relationships with women on the curse, you are calling them back to honor the curse. You're saying, hey, you shouldn't, don't talk back to me. Remember the curse? Behave like you should in the curse. Do what you said in the curse. Live like the curse says you're supposed to live. This ruling of men over women in Genesis 3.16 is not part of God's original plan. It is not part of the creation. It is not part of what he said was good. It is a direct result of the curse. And therefore, therefore, because it is part of the curse, it is 
prescriptive of ideal male-female relationships, just descriptive of the mess that sin's entrance occasions. So what it means is that this is a description of how sin entered the world. It is not prescriptive of how God intended for it to be. So let me just say something to the women in the room because I told you I'm gonna speak directly to you. Uh, Biblical prescriptive and descriptive lenses and languages are everything for your approach to scripture. Because throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, it is, it is uh, flooded with descriptions of men walking with God, away from God, accomplishing great things for God, failing God. It's man, 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 man. And then every once in a while, a woman shows up and does something good, bad, and different. It doesn't matter, but there's very few stories of powerful women in the Bible. They're mostly stories of men. And so as a church structure, what's happened is we have decided that God is really a God for men and that when women show up on the scene, it's like a total one-off. It's like, can you believe this? Like, like, look at this. Like, this woman has gifts. She has talents. And all the, everybody's like, everybody's like, whoa, whoa, that doesn't happen that often, does it? No, I mean, I'd have to like, I'd have to really look in here to find a woman that has gifts like you. And that's because too often we have taken the description that the Bible has, the culture the Bible has come out of, and we have used it as a prescription for how God actually wants us to behave. We have taken a description of what happened in the curse, and we have used it as a prescription for how my marriage is supposed to operate. Instead of recognizing that this is brokenness, and this is damaging. This passage... Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you is clearly descriptive of what happened, but has been used as a prescription for how things are meant to be. So I'm just gonna put this on the screen. It'll be on the notes, it'll be on the app. You don't have to write it down if, if a, who you're with, it would be really uncomfortable. You can come steal it later, but I'm just gonna say it right now. It's an inauthentic voice that tries to lead you back to the cursed lifestyle and its consequences. That is not the voice of God. It's just the voice of religion and systems and us that are trying to maintain the best control we can, which happens across the different genders, but it's just, it's just something that happens when we begin to feel challenged. And so men and women, we've done this for a long time. We start to own, we start to control, we start to dictate, but it is not what's intended by the Bible. Now, that's a descriptive passage. Today I want to look at a prescriptive passage. So we're going to fast forward to the time of Jesus and we're going to imagine that Jesus is around doing this whole new thing. Jesus rolls in and he's like the Messiah of Messiahs, right? He shows up like the, the real deal and he begins to do all these amazing uh, rabbinical things and he proves that he is this beautiful rabbi and he's then going to choose disciples and he's supposed to choose the people that have it within their genealogy. They are priests created by priests priest created by priest created by priest. And he says, nah, I'm going to take that fisherman instead. And they're like, you, you, I'm sorry, you can't do that. That's not the way. And Jesus says, oh, I'm, I think you misunderstand. I'm about the new way. And he says, okay, well, maybe you can have one fisherman, but you at least got to have this son of a priest of a priest. And he's like, nah, I'll take the tax collector in the back. <laughs> Jesus is like picking everybody on spiritual kickball that nobody wants. That's just like his whole strategy. His whole strategy is the kid underneath the swing asleep, you're with me. It's just, it's just all backwards and wrong. And he says he's traveling along with these guys who start to believe 
The stories Jesus tells them about their life. You're called, you're important, you're valuable. And they're all men. And they're like, okay, I, I think I can buy into this. I mean, it's unorthodox, but I am a dude. And dudes are allowed to be disciples. So Jesus, we believe in you. And he goes, okay, great. This is the new way. They're like, this is the new way. It's very Mandalorian of him. <laughs> From there, Jesus decides he's gonna be hosted by a woman in a town and that woman's name is Martha. Luke chapter 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. Listen very carefully to this phrase. Who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now to us, we're like, okay. But to the first century readers, this is a really important like, <gasps> what? Because that's not what women do here. The original audience would have quickly noticed this radical act on the part of Mary. I'll put it on the screen because Mary, by sitting on the ground, took the position of a disciple by sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. This was a role fiercely reserved only for men. So Jesus says, can we stay at your house? Martha says, yeah, let's do it. Mary and Martha talk about their meal plan and what they want to do because that's what the women do in this culture. The guys take their, their uh, the, the, seat at the feet of Jesus, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Mary's helping in the kitchen doing her thing, and she can't stand it anymore, and she goes over, I don't know, to one of the disciples, and she leans down, and she says, hey, scooch over. <laughs> As a disciple, you would have been like, woman, <laughs> don't you know this was the, where the disciples of the Lord meet? Get back in the kitchen. And she's like, I said, scooch over. Mary had those crazy eyes. You guys know what I'm talking about, Right? <laughs> You guys, men in the room know. You're like, I know. Yeah, yeah like, I said scooch over, right? So she, she ends up scooting in this next to Jesus, right, or next to Jesus on the ground. And you have to think, we're going to talk about this. All the disciples were like, what in the world? Like, we can't talk about cool stuff with her here. Like, this is our time. Like, go in there and do your thing. But what's also amazing about it is that Martha also was very frustrated that Mary wasn't in there helping. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, to Jesus, by the way, who's teaching? And she says to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Just imagine the space created right there in that room. I mean, that's some uncomfortable stuff. Like Mary's called out, just totally awkward, right? Like, like she's being tattled on to God. Right? You know the boys in the room are like, finally, get her out of here. Like, why not? And you know Martha's like, that's right, calling us back to cultural norms. You know what I'm talking about, Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. And Jesus, I think, just lets it all soak in. He just lets it all sit in because Jesus is all kinds of in the uncomfortable. By the way, total side note, I think it'd be profound. Maybe we'll do this in the fall. Do a whole series on all the things Jesus doesn't care about. We'll call it Jesus Don't Care. Just a whole series called Jesus Don't Care. We're like, Jesus don't care about that. Jesus don't care about that. Just all this, because we stuff these words in the mouth of Christ and say, Jesus, this matters to God, this matters to God. How about we let God say what matters to God and what doesn't matter to God? Total side note. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll only preach it at this service. The rest of the church will do something else, but. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So this is where it gets, this is where it gets interesting because Jesus is about to say something to uh, Martha because her sister noticed 
and asked Jesus to call her back to her place. I want to say something before we put up what Jesus says. I want to say this. Um, It's not always only men that bring damage to women in the church. It's not only men that need to be awakened to how the Lord is moving. Some of the damage done to women in the church has been done by other women. Women who say, you don't fit, you don't belong, don't you know, you need to be in here with us, that's not how it works, your gifts are weird. That last one was a little over the top, but you know, you're, maybe some of you got some weird gifts, like strange stuff that, that, you know, has to be done carefully. But women oftentimes are the one doing the damage to other women because there is a culture in which we have raised ourselves in and been raised in, and even sometimes it's women that need to see what Jesus is trying to do. So Jesus is gonna correct this whole thing with a simple, straightforward answer. But the Lord answered her, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary, listen to this word, has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Mary has a radical desire to follow Jesus. And so she asks the disciples to make room for her. She sits at the feet of Jesus and she does what all disciples back in the day do. She asks questions, she engages in conversation and she makes the room really uncomfortable. It's just not standard, it's just not normal. They don't even know how to operate with this behavior. Women belong here, men belong here, Jesus belongs here, this is how we operate. And Mary says, I don't feel like I fit in that role and I wanna be a disciple of Jesus as well. And she sits and she's called out by a woman who doesn't understand. She's not encouraged by men around her, but it is Jesus who answers with this radical, powerful word. And he deems this space she is at as good. He describes her posture as good the place that she is existing. This word good that Jesus is using is the word agathos. It means inherently or intrinsically good. It describes what originates from God and is empowered by him in their life through faith. This word is most well-known and most often used in Genesis 1, 31, and God saw that everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Again, Precurse, pre-fall, pre-any of that stuff, he saw creation and said it was good. And now in the same way, I'll put it up, that God looked over his creation and said it was very good. Jesus looked over Mary, where she was, what she wanted, and did the same. He said, you are good, and this is good. And men in the room knew what that meant, and Martha knew what that meant, and it would have made all of them incredibly uncomfortable as Jesus doesn't just describe, but prescribes to her goodness. So we talk a lot about feelings around Kesed, a lot about just sitting in your feelings that they are neither good nor bad, they are just yours and where you're at. Wonder what these people felt. First, let's think about Martha. Martha's in the room. She's doing the best she can to serve God how she knows, and all of a sudden another woman shows up and does it completely backwards, and then God approves of it. My guess is for somebody like Martha, she is coming to a sudden realization that she's been trying to mold her whole life to how culture sees her. She is embarrassed, she is angry, she is sad, and maybe just a little bit excited. My guess is we have Martha's in the room right now. You've got really good at the church game. You've got really good at the system. You've got really good at knowing when you should speak up and when you should sit down. 
And all of a sudden, a series like this is awakening you to new desires and new hopes and new plans and new responsibilities. And part of you is excited, but part of you is so frustrated that you spent so many years believing something about yourself that's just not true. And I say, that's the space you should feel. And that's where you should be. Because you might be anxious about many things, but there is also a space for you at the feet of Jesus, a space that is good. Next, it would be the disciples, the men in the room. For some of us, this series has been an awakening. For some of us, it's just caused a bunch of insecurity and uncertainty because suddenly we have to realize and consider that we might not be the answers we thought we were to all of Jesus' problems. But I thought Jesus needed men to rise up. I thought Jesus needed men to be warriors, and he does, and he should. But Jesus doesn't need you to accomplish everything as if you're the only one who can do it, especially when you do it at a cost to the person he's given you to partner with to accomplish all the great things he wants for your life. If you are living your life based on the curse, like that's your brand, bro. Like that's your thing. Like, you know how people have those really fun, I was going to say cheesy, but they're not all cheesy, but they like have your last name and then like a Christian slogan, like as you walk in your house. Yeah, don't lie. A bunch of you have it. You know you do, but you should just put your last name and then like own that curse, right? Like just like, that's your thing. Like I'm in charge all the time. And if stuff doesn't work out, she made me do it. I mean, that's the style, right? That's the style. That's Genesis one style husbandry right there. You're in charge all the time unless it doesn't work out and then it's the helper made me do it. Instead of realizing that you have a beautiful role to play, but for a season, I'm gonna stand up and say this just because I wanna be as respectful and kind as I can. The most powerful thing some of the men in this room can do is scooch over. Like that might be the most powerful thing you can do. I want you to know that was all women that clapped from up here. Not a, sol- not a solid dude. Not a solid dude was like, oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> guys, are, guys are bad scoochers. We're not good at it. We've not been trained. We don't have any scooching training in us very much. But we need it, and it's important. We need to do it because it allows for partnership, which allows for stronger homes, which allows for stronger warriors to be raised in our homes, which, by the way, can also be maidens. We can raise warrior maidens and warrior men, and just be warriors for Jesus. Instead of deciding that these people have to wear this color, and these people have to wear this color, and these people belong this way, and those people belong that way. I mean, I got a bunch of long-haired guys in the room right now, so you're already halfway there. (laughs) We talked about it first service. If you're wondering what's going on, go back and watch it. Open-handed stuff. The church is terrible at this. It's terrible at scooching over for anybody. And it's been that way for a very long time. What about Mary? I think Mary started off incredibly uncomfortable. I think Mary made a decision that she wasn't going to waste this opportunity to sit with Jesus and have her life changed by him. And so she left the chores and the cultural accountability, and she went after where the Lord was. And I'm guessing that it started off uncomfortable, especially when other women started calling her out. She got the stink eye from all the disciples in the room who were like... But then I think after Jesus spoke, I think after sometimes some of you in here hear the, I hope the spirit of God in your own heart, I think for the first time perhaps in Mary's whole life, she finally went from being uncomfortable to being comfortable in her own skin. Because she was who she was supposed to be. And she was where she was supposed to be at. 
I want to say to women in the room who have been pushed through this place, you've experienced some of these things I'm talking about. Um, I want to say this as formally as I can, as Danny as I can, as on behalf of the, the leaders of this church as I can. Uh, I am so sorry that that happened to you. I'm so sorry that that you were made to believe something that wasn't true about yourself, that, that you were demeaned, that you were controlled, that your world was contrived in such a way as to make you less than someone else. I am so sorry that you have paid this cost. And my hope is today, as you grieve that experience, as you create tear soup around that experience, that you find new hope and new meaning sitting at the feet of Jesus, even if your Martha still sitting in the doorway. Because there is room for you there always has been. I hope men in the room that you realize that uh, we're all just still fishermen and tax collectors. Like the idea of us being at the table was supposed to be like amazing to us. And somewhere along the way, it went less about our skills and abilities and more about our gender. And I just don't see that in the Bible. And so I'm sorry to guys in the room too. I've not done that any service, but I think there's guys in the room too who are realizing, I think I, I think I misunderstood And a big part of that is because there were no men to stand up in other churches to make sure that this kind of thinking and this kind of behavior continued. The last person in the room to maybe uh, consider feelings around would be Jesus. Jesus who came to accomplish this new way. I want to imagine Jesus felt a rush as he looked upon Mary, as he thought about all the other women who would hear about this story, as he described her as good, as he prescribed her uh, goodness, and therefore direct access to the Lord. I want to think that he knew the church would always and continually wrestle with this, and that he hoped this story would be used in this way to accomplish great things in his name. Because I'm here to tell you there's still a lot of work to be done. The church is still really, really bad at this. If you think we can knock one series out and all of a sudden it's all just better, then you've misunderstood the problem. I started off uh, this series talking about open-handed, close-handed issues, and I used tattoos as one of those examples. Uh, I shared how tattoos are directly tied to my story and that through therapy, I didn't even know why I had such a chronic desire to get more and more tattoos as a teenager till my therapist asked me, when did you get your first tattoo? And I just uttered out, I think I was two and a half or three. And he was very confused, and I shared with you that uh, as a cancer kid, a Dornbecker kid, when you are radiated, they hold you down and give you tattoos. And so I had been living, kind of reenacting some of that trauma in my life, and that was just part of my story. And so I shared how tattoos, from my perspective, are a very open-handed issue in the Bible. God is not for or against tattoos. They are a-biblical. Well, the church doesn't like language like that. The church doesn't like when people... Uh, say, hey, have you ever considered this other way of thinking about that? And so uh, the church instead loves the power of a good demeaning description. And I was fortunate enough to read, receive one of those this last week. I received an email. It was quite long and articulate. But uh, the opening line of the email is all I've chosen to share with you. And this is what it says. Danny, God hates tattoos, so he hates 18% of you. Church is ruthless, folks. It's not messing around. Like, like no intro at all. Of course, I flipped that on its head and been telling my wife all week, did you know God loves 82% of me? All 82% of this belongs to the Lord. Alyssa, who assists me in the back, reminded me that that's a solid B minus. So listen, folks, C's get degrees. So I'm doing pretty good when it comes to when I'm... (laughs) 
But this is just a very small example of how the church uh, deals with and addresses people who are like, nah, I don't think I'm going to behave that way. I don't think I'm going to walk that out. Even when someone owns like, oh, my stuff was pretty subconscious, it just doesn't know what to do with gray. It needs to be all black or all white. It cannot do anything in the middle. Mess, according to most church leaders, doesn't belong in the church. And yet I'm just here to tell you that I think mess is like the primary thing Jesus came to bring. Around this time in Jesus's life, uh, there's a beautiful temple and the temple is beautifully uh, articulated with structures and all kinds of things. And the temple had different sort of class systems for how you could get access to God. And within the center of the center of the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And it held the Ark of the Covenant, beautiful golden box, which held all these different artifacts of the Lord. And that's where, according to the Bible in the Old Testament, the spirit of the Lord was present. Then there were some men, some very refined, religious, structured, pedigreed men. They were allowed to go in the Holy of Holies only a few times a year. And every other time of the year that they would have access, they would go to the room outside the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a very thick veil or curtain. Then outside that, other Jewish men could go. Then outside that, the slaves and the women could come and worship. That's how the temple system was set up. It says that when Jesus came to change all these kinds of things, eventually those same Jewish men said, you don't fit in our system. We only have one God and he sits on a golden box right over here. We understand how it works. We've dialed it in. We've refined it. We've figured out who's in, who's out. And by the way, Jesus, we've taken a boat. You're out. You're just too messy. You're not Roman enough, right? You're not Jewish enough. You're not, you're not anything enough. We don't even know what your whole love everybody thing's about. So we're gonna pull all the right strings and we're gonna make sure and get you killed. And so Jesus eventually goes through this great suffering and he ends up on a cross and he says all these amazing things. And one of the last things that happens, one of the last things that happens is that in Matthew 27, 50, 51, it says that Jesus is about to give up his spirit and cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. I want you to see this. I want you to leave today's talk. This is the only image I care about that you hear today. I want you to imagine this, that Jesus is over on Calvary. He's on a hill next to thieves and murderers surrounded by nothing but the wrong people. That there are men celebrating over in the church, the right men, doing the right thing, following the right systems. And that Jesus gives up his spirit and suddenly this veil is torn, separating this holy of holies from the rest of the world. Now, what should have happened if God was still reigning in that room? According to culture, it had happened before in the Old Testament. When that veil opened up because there was no proper procedure, because there was no proper structure, the spirit of God should have been rushed out upon these men and they all should have lost their lives. And that's exactly what they thought would happen when the earthquake happened and the veil tore. But instead, they all hit the ground thinking, oh, we're done for before the Holy Spirit of God is going to consume us because we haven't deserved this place and they sat there I don't know how long waiting to die and eventually one by one they looked into the room and they could see the golden box they could see where God's presence was supposed to be and do you know what was there nothing it was just a box it was just old religion and old ways and old systems and powerful men who missed it 
And yet just a few miles away on a hill hanging on a cross was the body of a savior who was surrounded not just by men, but by men and women together in his presence, grieving the lost and about to be sent out into the world to share his message. I think a lot of churches are still worshiping that golden box. I think we love that veil because it gives us systems and courtyards and ways to say, you're out, you're out, I'm in. This is how we do it. But instead, that veil that was placed, that curse that was placed, instead what has happened is Jesus came, his love changed everything, his death changed everything. The veil was torn open, not to let us closer into the golden box, but to bring us closer to where Jesus was in the mess and in the mud and in the blood to be covered, to cry, to hurt, to be sad, and to reach and become the people we're supposed to in his name. This is where we're supposed to go, I promise you. But it's gonna take warrior men willing to scoot over, some warrior women willing to be uncomfortable and step a little against their culture, and it's going to take a willingness to step outside the structure that's beautiful and calligraphied and anointed and golden and into the messy, bloody place that Christ calls us to go. This is where we find each other. This is where the hope of the world lies. And it is good. I want to spend some time with you in that place. So if you could just close your eyes. Lord, there's a lot happening in the room right now. So I'm just going to create space for you to, to meet people where they are and how they are. To grieve what it is they've lost. To move how it is they want to move. To see, Lord, what it is you want to point out to them. I'm going to ask, Lord, that there would just be a strong, strong sense of your presence and your purpose. As we realize you came to change it all, Lord. You came to make a difference. You came to make an impact. And maybe the only thing standing in the way is me. And so, Lord, I ask that you would transform each and every heart in here, that they would have new eyes to see and new ears to hear that there would be an incredibly powerful presence of renewal as you take us where you want us to go, as we think different, as we be different, as we feel different, as we worship different, as we pray different, as we give different. May we follow you into this new way and into this new place. In Jesus' name. Amen. There was a moment when the lights went out When death had claimed its victory The king of love had given up his life the darkest day in history There on the cross they made for sinners 
every curse his blood atoned one final breath and it was finished but not the end we could have known for the earth began to shake and the veil was torn what sacrifice is made as the heavens roll let's all stand and sing this
Oh!